Nuclear Radiation Trickery Radiation is the invisible, underestimated, misunderstood nuclear danger that the nukesters cleverly disguise as meh, no big deal. And most people don't understand that there's a big difference between external and internal radiation exposure. But the nuclear industry doesn't want you to know that and confuses the matter further and intentionally by taking things like tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima and putting a Geiger counter next to it, never saying that that device only measures external gamma radiation, and they say, see, see, this demonstrates nothing dangerous here, nothing to worry about. Except they're fooling you. A magician's sleight of hand trick. They're measuring for external dangers, which are minimal, when the worst problem comes from somewhere else, the internal exposure. And it takes a genuine expert to put radiation facts in proper perspective. And when she tells you... If you drink in contaminated water that has a radioactive element that puts out alpha particles or beta particles or both, that the size of these particles that bounced off your skin, that's why they bounced off. They were so big. Now they're inside your body and they are so big that they're like cannonballs. And they're cannonballs that can set off cancer, DNA damage, heart attack strokes, and so much more. Well, when Mary Olson of Gender and Radiation Impact Project explains that the real damage of nuclear radiation comes from internal exposure, and she has so much more to share, you get an even greater sense of that dangerous deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we follow up on the impact so far from the Oppenheimer film with author and filmmaker Greg Mitchell. One of the things the movie assiduously avoids is radiation, even the word itself. So what do we end up talking about here on Nuclear Hot Seat this week? You guessed it, radiation. You'd expect nothing less of us. We talk with Mary Olson of Gender and Radiation Impact Project on the nuclear industry's minimizing of the dangers and manipulating the information they put out regarding radiation, if they bother to acknowledge it at all. She gives us the basics, then talks about an exciting new training she's presenting in September that will fill in the blanks for anyone who wants to know radiation truth. A true brain trust is in the process of forming, and you're invited to join. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story with Linda Pence-Gunter, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than has appeared in a single indictment this week. 
so far. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 15, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., a big win in Illinois when Governor J.B. Pritzker vetoed SB 76, a bill that was introduced to repeal the long-standing 1987 Illinois Nuclear Construction Moratorium. The bill had also been introduced as a not-so-subtle promotion for the so-called next generation of nuclear reactors, which nuclear advocates want to bring to Illinois. According to Dave Kraft, director of the Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service, had it passed, this bill would not only have removed all prohibitions for generating even more high-level radioactive wastes with no disposal method in place, Illinois currently hosts 11,000 tons of orphan spent reactor fuel, it would have opened the door to more nuclear reactors, which could have had devastating effects on the renewable energy goals championed in the 2021 Climate and Energy Jobs Act. We talked with Dave before the vote for nuclear hot seat number 627 from June 28th, and we'll be speaking with him shortly to find out exactly what this win means. Ed Lyman, who is Director of Nuclear Power Safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists, draws our attention to a rule change at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that is proposed that would potentially allow new nuclear reactors to be exempt from all off-site emergency evacuation requirements. He explains this position. He recently published an op-ed in TheHill.com that explains why the Union of Concerned Scientists opposes this rule, which is being pushed by the nuclear industry. We will link to that article on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 634. Now here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. We often cite the old adage, think globally, but act locally. After all, most global changes of significance have come as a result of individuals or small groups of people deciding something matters and advocating and agitating for change. During the Cold War, when fear of a nuclear Armageddon was at its peak, nuclear-free zones began to be established around the world. Entire countries like Austria are nuclear-free zones, so are major cities such as Baltimore, Maryland, and so, for now, is the city of Tacoma Park, Maryland, home to my organization, Beyond Nuclear. But in a unanimous vote two weeks ago, the Tacoma Park City Council voted to abolish its nuclear-free Tacoma Park Committee of Citizens, tasked with ensuring the city complies with its Nuclear-Free Zone Act, in place since 1983. The city insists it remains committed to its nuclear-free zone status. But at the same time, it has rid itself of democratic citizen oversight, an ominous move from a city that prides itself on its progressive history and values. The Tacoma Park Nuclear Free Zone Act ensures that the city of Tacoma Park does not do business with companies that manufacture, are invested in, or support the manufacture of nuclear weapons. It also recommends that its government and residents reject nuclear power. A petition from former members of the Tacoma Park Nuclear Free Committee is now in circulation to urge the city to reinstate the committee. There is reason to fear that, at best, the city will weaken its nuclear-free code, since the council has tasked the city attorney to take his editor's pen to the act and delete all but what they termed the still-relevant tasks. All of this will be done without oversight from a committee of citizens with expertise on this issue. 
It's a shock to find that the current government of a city renowned both nationwide and internationally for its nuclear-free stance is ready to dismiss support from its community to maintain this status and reputation. And it reveals a profound lack of understanding about the city's long-standing leadership role in the nuclear abolition space. The Tacoma Park City Council is unfortunately not alone in being completely out of step with the current risks faced by all of us, regardless of where we live. Only with the success of the recent feature film Oppenheimer has the terrible threat that nuclear weapons still pose been relaunched into the public psyche. But what the Tacoma Park Council has also failed to understand is that, as with the climate crisis, our city does not exist in its own bubble. Every contribution made, whether to carbon reductions or nuclear disarmament, makes a difference in whether our country achieves those goals. Please go to the Beyond Nuclear website to sign the petition. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Japan is still adamant that it is going to release 1.3 million tons of radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, starting as soon as the end of this month, which is only two weeks away. The protests keep growing. Thousands of ordinary South Korean people, activists, and fishermen gathered Saturday in central Seoul from across the country to express their firm opposition to Japan's planned discharge of the radioactive wastewater into the ocean. Last Friday, August 11, the People's Action to Stop Dumping of Fukushima Daiichi Radioactive Water pulled together multinational stakeholder groups, including fisher folks, civil society organizations, and scientists from eight different countries. This was part of a global media conference on global people's voice against Japan's ocean dumping of radioactive wastewater, organized by the Global Campaign Network Against Japan's Ocean Dumping of Nuclear Wastewater. The physical event took place at Korea Green Foundation in Seoul, while the digital world, including people in the U.S., Fiji, the Philippines, Australia, the U.K., Taiwan, Japan, and Korea, all condemned the unscientific and unaccountable behavior of the Japanese government and the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. The joint press conference stated that any ocean dumping of nuclear wastewater is an international crime and demanded that the Japanese government should adopt a state-of-the-art scientific standard and a best available technology for ensuring radioactive safety as they fulfill the international conventions such as the law of the sea. They also urged, quote, all the organs of the United Nations, including the IAEA, must oppose and stop Japan's plan to dump radioactive wastewater into the Pacific and ask for no support to Japan's plan by any countries. At Fukushima Daiichi, leaks were found in a hose meant to transfer the tritium-contaminated radioactive wastewater. TEPCO conducted a probe after higher-than-usual levels of radioactive material were detected in rainwater in the dike around a storage tank. Now they say it's because someone caused cracks with a blade cutter while removing packaging around the hose after it was delivered. And the dog ate their homework. This is the way the world will end, not with a bang, but with a blade cutter. Here in the U.S., a coalition of groups including Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, Citizens for Health, Ecological Options Network, and Beyond Nuclear have petitioned the Food and Drug Administration for tighter food standards in the face of the 
pending release by Japan of radioactive wastewater from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. The U.S. limit for radiocesium in food is 12 times higher than Japan's, meaning food that is too radioactive to be sold in Japan are perfectly fine to be shipped over here and sold to U.S. citizens. Nine years ago, a coalition spearheaded by Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, Citizens for Health, Ecological Options Network, and Beyond Nuclear, petitioned the Food and Drug Administration to lower their guideline from 1,200 becquerels per kilogram to just five. In nine years, no action. We will link to that petition so you have the opportunity to sign now. It will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 634. Here in the U.S., President Joe Biden is hosting the Prime Minister of Japan and the President of South Korea this Friday, August 18, for the first ever trilateral summit at Camp David. It is doubtful that the planned dump of radioactive wastewater from Fukushima will be on the agenda, but we have it from a reliable source that sushi will not be on the menu. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. Apparently, the baseball team of the Dominican Republic had such a peachy time when they were in Japan two years ago for the Olympics that Fukushima has sent peaches grown in Fukushima Prefecture as a gift to the embassy of that country. No mention of radiation monitoring or testing, just, mm-mm, aren't they sweet? No word of the Dominican Republic monitoring its athletes for possible health consequences over the coming years. But that's okay. The ceremony was really spiffy because, of course, it was organized by TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company. And that's why, TEPCO and your propagandistic peaches, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. In Ukraine, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power site, the main off-site power line was lost and then restored after several days. Unit 4 suffered a steam generator leak and has again been placed into cold shutdown, but undaunted, Russia is transferring Unit 6 to hot shutdown, a more dangerous stance. And the site remains hampered by a critical shortage of licensed personnel. They are at half-staff, leading to an increased risk of accidents and hazards. Now, here's the first of this week's two featured interviews. Three weeks ago, for Nuclear Hot Seat number 631, we talked at length with Greg Mitchell about the Oppenheimer film. Greg is an author, award-winning filmmaker, and expert on the history and media presence of the atomic bomb from the Manhattan Project to current times. Now, as he promised during our first interview... We have him back to go over what the media and public response to the film has been, as well as some suggestions on how those who oppose nuclear might harness the presence of this film at this time to exponentially grow opposition to nuclear weapons, and by extension, nuclear reactors. I spoke with Greg Mitchell on August 11, 2023. Greg Mitchell, it is great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Always wonderful to be chatting with you, even if the subject can sometimes be a little grim. Sometime? <laughs> we last spoke three weeks ago, and that was when the Oppenheimer movie had just opened. We had seen screenings of it beforehand and were able to post only four days after the movie actually appeared for the public. What have you seen 
in the media coverage that it has received? As you know, I've been doing a daily blog newsletter called Oppenheimer from Hiroshima to Hollywood. So I've been writing about this as we speak every day for the last like 27 days since I saw the early screening. So I've written a lot myself. I've contributed a lot to the dialogue, I guess, myself. And I've been covering the coverage, which I often do. I've sort of been a, obsessed with the media and, and movies going my entire career almost. So I kind of specialize in a way on how the, the media covers events. And now you've got this combination of media and Hollywood. I'm sure as you know, and most listeners know, it has gotten graves from critics by and large. It has had some mixed things, you know, which is where, I mean, I was, you would count me as positive, but with a lot of qualms, but certainly it, it would be considered a critical hit. And it's also, as it turned out, a hit at the box office, uh, even beyond what they they thought. There were projections that it was going to do very well, partly because it's you know been a terrible summer for movies. And I guess this Barbenheimer, the pairing with the Barbie movie helped spread the word. So there are a lot of maybe Barbie fans who gave it a chance. I don't know really know what they thought of it, which might be the key question here. You're talking about the impact of the movie, but it's done phenomenally well. And there's all sorts of yardsticks, you know, the most popular World War II movie ever, one of the most popular biopics ever one of the most popular R-rated movies ever. So for all those reasons, it's been plus, 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 plus. And then there are those of us who have pointed out inaccuracies or things that are mainly not in the movie. There have been a lot of interesting articles where people have brought up uh, even mm. things I have brought up. At the time that we spoke, you and I together identified three major aspects of the movie that were notable by their absence. There was no mention of the people who lived in proximity to Trinity in New Mexico and were hit with the radiation and the fallout with no information whatsoever. There were no visuals of the damage on the ground to people or property at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And there was not a single mention of the word radiation, let alone any exploration of what the damages were from exposure to it. In looking at the reviews and articles that have come in the wake of the movie, how have they been handling these omissions or have they just been raves that have gone past the difficulties with what's left out of the movie? Well, I think some coverage and some reviewers have raised those issues and a couple others, I guess, but you know, usually raised very gently or not pursued them at all or, or, or thought it really didn't detract much from the movie at all. I mean, one thing interesting is that there have been those like myself and a few others who've been critical of some of these omissions, and we've done it more than one venue. But Christopher Nolan has not responded at all, and neither has Kai Bird, my friend, who uh, you know co-wrote the book it's based on. And they've basically letting people have their say and really not responding at all, which you know is their right. And there's no controversies, boiling controversy that we're going to get back and forth on this. So. You've kind of had to look for articles or podcasts or radio interviews where people have raised these issues. And I suppose the most positive thing is that the downwinders, the whole issue of people affected by the Trinity test, which of course is featured in the movie, the actual test itself, have gotten a lot of, there's been a lot of articles. And in fact, there's been some moves now in Congress or in the Senate, and then Biden himself kind of promising to a new aid for people who have claimed they've been affected by that and other tests out there. 
If you want to say the one thing we know for sure, we can speculate on other things that the movie might be sparking in the future. But for now, about all you can say though is that there's been definitely positive movement that probably wouldn't have happened without the movie on the downwinders and that issue. What are young people making of this? We know from some of the responses that they do show they weren't taught much of this at school. In terms of what they're making of it and what they want to do about it, you know, the movie, if anything, is focused on, okay, the current threat and future danger. And so it's kind of put on on a platter. Okay, what do you want to do about it? My orientation has always been looking at the decision to use the bomb, the use of the bomb, the immediate aftermath, how the media and the public have responded to Hiroshima and Nagasaki over the decades. But in terms of what's going to happen with current nuclear dangers, that's unknown right now. That's certainly a topic we're going to be exploring in future episodes of the show as to what the degree of organizing around the film and using the film as a catapult for expanding an activist response to all things nuclear. I have a couple of interviews in the pipeline for that. But going back to some of the changes that have just taken place in the last three weeks, there have been both legislative and political strides made and log jams broken. This includes the Senate's bipartisan passage of an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would extend what's called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA, which is meant to help downwinders harmed by exposure to radiation from Trinity and the Nevada test sites. Might the timing of this bipartisan amendment somehow be related to the film, or is it just one of those cosmic, quote unquote, coincidences? (laughs) <laughs> well, I was under the impression it had something to do with the film. Uh, you know, I may be wrong, but it certainly I never heard about it until then. And and certainly the press around it certainly, I'm sure, helped passage. Even the uh, lamentable Josh Hawley on the Republican side was behind it. I'm not quite sure how that happened. So that's pretty bipartisan. That's definitely a big gain, especially as it goes through. I know Biden has, has said some good things this week. And uh, I mean, that's a big thing missing from the movie. And it shows how there can be real world progress. Doing something with nuclear weapons or changing the first use policy we've had since 1945 might be a little more difficult. Another piece of the progress that has been made, you mentioned President Biden, and he just designated a new national monument in Arizona that protects the Grand Canyon watershed and lands around it, about one million acres, from uranium mining. Now, these are waters that are essential to the Havasupai and other Native people. Something this big, which included not only the declaration that this was now a national monument, but President Biden's trip to the site in order to sign it. It was a big press moment. Something like that does not get put together overnight. Again, might this decision have been timed in advance to coincide with the movie, to perhaps deflect any kind of negative commentary that might result from it. Yeah, it's hard to say. I haven't studied it that much to see the the chronology of that, why it came about here. It certainly got a lot of press this week. It may be more they're taking advantage of the sort of Oppenheimer moment to make it seem like they're doing something inspired by the movie, whether it really was inspired by the movie. As long as there's positive things happening, I'm happy. And it will be interesting to see in the months ahead if this movie turns out to be just another kind of summer blockbuster. I mean, it is kind of amazing that people are apparently are sitting through this three-hour movie. It's a serious subject. Now, even if you think the movie has some drawbacks, it is at least a very serious subject that people are sitting through. At least I think they are. 
Do you recall when there's the scene with the extreme close-up on Oppenheimer's face as he's viewing what is being narrated as the pictures from on the ground in Hiroshima? There was a phrase that was used by the narrator. He did not use the word radiation. He was talking mm-hmm. about the impact of radio something or another. Did you catch what that term was? I didn't. And There's a published screenplay of Nolan's screenplay. I ordered it last week and it's on back orders. I won't be getting it for another week, apparently. So that may clear up some of these things. What struck me was that it, it only shows Oppenheimer from the side. You don't see what's on the screen. And, you know, he grows more disturbed as it goes along. And actually, on my daily blog, I posted almost the exact scene in the 1979 PBS series called Oppenheimer with Sam Waterston as Oppenheimer. And he's sitting in the exact type of screening room and watching the footage. And in the 1979 series, they then swing around and they show what he's seeing on the screen. And you are seeing some of those somewhat familiar images of some of the Japanese victims, which Christopher Nolan could have easily done in his movie. In his defense, he has said, well, this movie's all from Oppenheimer's perspective. And he was not in Hiroshima. You know, we couldn't sort of put him there and walking around, but it would have been e- easy to swing around. Since You know, he kept saying this movie's from Oppenheimer's eyes. He could have easily swung around and showed, okay, this is what Oppenheimer's seen. I mean, it's silly. And there's plenty of other things in the movie that are not Oppenheimer's perspective, including a little too much Robert Downey as Louis Strauss. That's a ridiculous claim that you couldn't show what Oppenheimer was seeing on the screen. That's the scene you're talking about. Right. And I've even heard or read suggestions from people saying, well, if he didn't want those pictures in the movie, he could have interspersed them in the credits just so people would have the opportunity to see what they are as opposed to going, oh, well, how bad could it be if it, if they've never seen the pictures yeah. before? Yeah. You know, I guess we're used to post-credit things now and things mixed into the credit sequence and that kind of stuff. He didn't do that at all. Which may have been a choice to make the film more palatable to people who perhaps weren't aware of the magnitude of the horrors that were inflicted. Yeah. I mean, he could have either, uh, the one scene, again, when the the people who defend the movie on that score say, well, he has that scene where Oppenheimer's, the night of Hiroshima goes and the cheering crowd that's stomping their feet and screaming his name. And he goes up on the stage and gives a celebratory speech. And then he has these visions, very brief. Well, in fact, the first time I saw it, it was a little hard to tell what was going on. So brief. But, you know, he sees a woman with her face slightly, you know, is sort of burned. uh, And then it's in a fog and it disappears. And then he steps on some log, burnt log. And I guess you're supposed to think that, well, that's supposed to be a body, a charred body or something like that. Again, like a three second snippet. I mean, you could say on the one hand, it's a very powerful scene, almost surrealistic. But even there, if he wanted to say, well, I'm not actually going to show any of these photos or, or footage, he could have made that scene you know, a minute longer, 30 seconds longer, or two minutes longer. Just, okay, let's get a better look at these visions, or let's get more visions. Or you know, he looks at an American face and it transforms into a Japanese face, or woman carrying a baby or something. But it's, it's so brief in the movie and a little confusing exactly what's going on. So he could have done that. He didn't do that either. So... He missed two opportunities that were already presented to him to make it more powerful in that regard, and he didn't go there. We both know that the media lacks persistence of vision 
when it comes to big stories. And right now, because of the movie, Oppenheimer and nuclear issues are having their moment. But do you think it is just of the moment and the media will go back to sleep in X number of weeks or months? Or do you think that this might have some lasting change on the awareness within news and documentary and programming circles to where they move more honestly and more regularly into covering Um, nuclear? Well, we'll see. I thought maybe there'd be a slight change this year in coverage of poor Nagasaki, you know, the forgotten city. Again, I seem to be doing most of the writing about it and being quoted about it and so forth. So I did my annual uh, major Nagasaki pieces that got picked up and so forth, but I didn't see a lot else on Nagasaki. So it certainly didn't carry over to Nagasaki. My own score, and I don't know, again, I don't know if it, it means something. It probably somewhat connected to this. My film from two years ago, Atomic Cover-Up, which you're familiar with, award-winning film and played in 20 festivals. And there's a book, it's based on my book of the same title, Atomic Cover-Up. After two years, it's now just this week, found out it's getting picked up by PBS. And it'll be uh, aired nationally over PBS stations starting later this year. Now, would that have happened without this Oppenheimer moment? Probably not. So it may be an indication that people who are interested in writing about it, writing about this subject, raising the subject, people in Congress who might want to uh, stick their necks out. It is a moment, I guess, that people need to take advantage of, if you will, and uh, hopefully get some progress. Speaking of taking advantage of it, from your perspective, how might the film and this particularly media-intense moment be harnessed and used by those who oppose nuclear to expand the work and expand the presence of what we are doing? They could have forums and have meetings and have even email blasts or campus teach-ins, you know, the good old campus teach-ins we saw in the Vietnam days and then in the great anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s, which I was a part of, called them teach-ins. I guess the Iraq war, we saw some of that too. And it's just, okay, it's uh, you gather people together on campuses or in communities and say, okay, maybe a lot of you are just coming to this issue. So we're going to have a couple of local experts are going to talk about the issues. And then there'll be people here with tables to you know sign up for things to do. Somehow the word teach-ins always has been a very attractive phrase that gets people, especially younger people who might say, you know what, I don't know all that much about this and I, I'm interested. You know, It's only going to be a fraction of people. But it's something to build on. And you you can build it as after Oppenheimer, what next? In the old days, again, in Vietnam and 1980s anti-nuclear movement, people would have such gatherings and then then they would show a movie of some kind. Might be a short movie, a documentary or something. Now, that's not going to happen with Oppenheimer because, A, the movie is too long. It's too unfocused on the issue and uh, you don't have the rights to show it (laughs) if you wanted to. They could show my film, I guess, but there's a lot of films you could show. But it's not going to be Oppenheimer, but you could bill it as after Oppenheimer, what's next? Or after Oppenheimer, how do we save the world? Or after Oppenheimer, what you need to know, uh, call to action. And, you know, have some kind of sort of sexy title and uh, get people there. Promise them a local expert or two or film short or, or something. And then organize from that. Great suggestions all. Greg, we always appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you for Nuclear Hot Seat and stay in touch. Whatever you're doing next, we want to know about it. Okay. Well, I always appreciate the invitation and glad to talk to your listeners. Author and filmmaker, Greg Mitchell. 
In the chit-chat that quite often follows the interviews, Greg hit on two possible actions that could be taken by those people who oppose nuclear to take advantage of the film and continue to build awareness. First, he made this observation. I have not seen a single article saying that uh, anti-nuclear groups around the U.S. have been showing up with tables outside Oppenheimer screenings, you know, in the mall. There were materials at the screening I attended, but it was prior to the actual opening of the movie, and it was a screening that had the participation of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab, and other groups. So it's not surprising we had the materials, but it's a little disappointing to find out that that particular model is not being followed elsewhere. So it's a thought. The other, which could be quite fun, came as we were discussing the first nuclear film that appeared in 1947, entitled The Beginning or the End. Greg has written a book about this film, which chronicles how it changed from an intended warning about the perils of the nuclear bomb and in an attempt to raise awareness and concern against it, into a pro-nuclear propaganda screed under the influence of, among others, General Leslie Groves and President Harry Truman. Greg had this suggestion about how to utilize the film, The Beginning or the End. You should have a midnight screening of it, and people could come and laugh. If the movie is so bad, make it into a Rocky horror show. Nuclear horror show. Rocky nuclear horror show. Something like that. Oh, that is a great idea. I can see so many ways that would be cathartic. So, two suggestions for actions to take. If you decide to do either or both of them, let me know. Info at NuclearHotSeat.com and I will include it in activist shoutouts. We'll have this week's second featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear weapons, radioactive fallout, reactors, uranium mining radioactive waste, accidents, permissible, put that in quotes, radiation exposures. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as the risks from plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet despite the known dangers, this industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here every week to help you keep track of what's going on in the nuclear world and, if it upsets you, what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you cannot find in mainstream media and the stories behind those stories. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back and how any one of us, yes, even you, can take action towards stopping the nuclear madness. But in order to keep going, we need your help. This show runs on donations, and we need your support. So right now, go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Just hit pause and go there now. You can send us a one-time donation of any amount, or set up a recurring donation. Say every month you give us $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, which means that your donations are tax-deductible. So come on, let's go. NuclearHotSeat.com, red donate button, follow the prompts. And if you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Don't wait. We need the help as soon as you can give it. And know that whatever you can give, you have my deepest gratitude. 
And now, here's this week's second featured interview. As Greg Mitchell and I both pointed out, the Oppenheimer film is practically phobic about radiation. Not only not going into its impact on the Trinity downwinders, who were never even acknowledged in the film, or the damage that was done to the Japanese people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki who suffered through the blast, but the film avoided the word completely. So this being nuclear hot seat, as you might expect, we're going to have a focus on radiation and give you a fabulous opportunity to learn a whole bunch more. Biologist Mary Olson is clear that her life's mission is to bring to light the disproportionate impact of radiation on girls and women. She is founder of Gender and Radiation Impact Project, a 501c3 educational and funding nonprofit, and just a few of her many credits include addressing the 2014 Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Consequences of Nuclear Weapons in 2015 at the United Nations during review of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and in Russia on the medical consequences of nuclear weapons at an event sponsored by the International Committee of the Red Cross. Now, Mary joins with Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear to present Radiation Information for Everyone, or RIFE, R-I-F-E. It's an online series of classes for people for whom understanding radiation is personally important. I hope that would include all of us who pose nuclear. Together, these two women bring 60 years of combined experience in analysis, research, policy, politics, and support for and collaboration with radiation-impacted communities. When it comes to radiation, Mary Olson has a lot to say, and we're happy to always give her a chance to say it. We spoke on Friday, August 11, 2023. Mary Olson, it is always a delight and an education to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's wonderful to be invited, and I listen regularly. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thank you. Let's talk about radiation. What are some of the most common misconceptions people have about nuclear radiation? I think one of the ones that went on for a very long time was the idea that if particles bounced off your skin, they didn't give you an exposure. There's pure energy that we call gamma rays or X-rays. And then there's these particles called alpha particles and beta particles, and they all come out of the same event. And because the alphas and betas are so big, they bounce off your skin. There were decades in which it was assumed that that these things just didn't give you a radiation exposure. It was much further down the road that it became clear that if you drink in contaminated water that has a radioactive element that puts out alpha particles or beta particles or both, that the size of these particles that bounced off your skin, that's why they bounced off. They were so big. Now they're inside your body and they are so big that they're like cannonballs compared to light. You know, gamma rays come through as a non, there's no material there. There's no stuff. There's no matter. There are energy that come through and it can be quite harmful to be impacted by a gamma ray. But now we have cannonballs in the form of an alpha particle that can physically tear membrane or break a chromosome or definitely do damage to DNA. And the beta particle is somewhat smaller, but also has the same capacity to harm physical, physical harm in physical ways inside our body. If we eat it from contaminated food, drink it, contaminated water, 
breathe it in contaminated air. And so many people have been in these contaminated zones. So the nuclear establishment dismissed the harm to downwinders and to people impacted by Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. They wrote down the amount of exposure people received because they had this external radiation model only. And this is as big a deal as quantum mechanics not going along with Einsteinian physics for our world, but it has not been owned, talked about, discussed, acknowledged. It is a secret of the nuclear establishment that they dismiss this level of damage completely. What might a greater understanding of radiation do to the public's orientation towards nuclear weapons and reactors? I think that ultimately, people who grew up during the Cold War understand when they hear the word radiation that it means something dangerous. One of my biggest concerns about your question is that it doesn't reflect the enormous cliff of the younger people who didn't grow up during the Cold War and are deeply confused about radiation. They hear about radiation as a cure for cancer. They don't necessarily know that it caused the cancer and that even the treatments that may stop a cancer like a breast cancer may result in a secondary cancer later. So there's a lot of ignorance about radiation that allows people who are promoting the new nuclear age, they want to have a whole new chapter and use nuclear energy widely again in the world, instead of understanding that it has been a dead end, it has been a dangerous source of the existing disease we see in our society. And by the way, cancer is one of the biggest outcomes. We now have the data to show that heart disease and stroke are also outcomes from exposure to certain levels of radiation. So we can look at the diseases that are dogging the industrial world and know that radiation has contributed to them, but younger people don't know this. And so it's easy to stand up and say, nuclear, they say is G-R-E-E-N. I'm spelling it because I can't even say that, okay? It is not. It is black, brown, vomit colored. That's what radiation is, not G-R-E-E-N. But people are able to stand up and say that because radiation is invisible. But you can see the harm it is done once you understand that exposures have been written down, that people in contaminated areas have been suffering far higher impacts from radiation than has ever been acknowledged, and that we have an obligation to continue to teach and to continue to discover where the information isn't good enough. Speaking of information, you are about to launch in September for the second year in a row, a training on radiation that's going to take place over the internet, over Zoom, and be available to people. Explain what the course is, who's going to be involved with you, and what form it is taking. Cindy Folkers, who is with Beyond Nuclear, and I team up, and last year we did four courses. This year we're doing just the one, but we'll probably do some more in 2024. The one we're doing in September is called Radiation Basics. It is really not introductory. We're welcoming anyone who wants to join, but we acknowledge that we're kind of starting in with people who already have heard about Alpha, Beta, Gamma. We talk about them, but our goal is to help people who are working with these matters in their communities, in their families, in their professional life, and not yet understanding what the words mean, and also confused. And in Cindy and my point of view, 
they're confused because it's not only confusing, but because of these disconnects that I pointed to, the part about the particles being so different than the waves. Alpha and beta are particles. Gamma is pure energy. They are fundamentally different. And this has not been acknowledged, taken into full account, and good models provided for understanding what the impacts are. So we're not going to have all the answers, but we are a place where people who have questions can come, find other people that have questions, have time for me and Cindy. At this point, Ian Fairley's participation, he's Dr. Ian Fairley, lives in London, has a great website called ianfairley.org. He has pre-recorded some of the lectures and he may join us for the discussions. But the way this is put together is people do register. They may request a scholarship or pay a small fee. We have a sliding scale. And then we give all the class materials at once about two weeks before the first discussion session. And then we'll have one discussion session per week for five weeks. And I wouldn't really call it a training. I think people come out as confused as they came in, but they come out with a deeper and more robust appreciation for why they're confused. And the last thing I'll just add is that Cindy and I are doing this because we have decades of experience educating people about the hazards of radiation, helping non-government organizations engage with federal licensing processes and environmental impact statements and legal cases and legislative activities. And we've done all that. And during that time, we, each of us have had the great privilege to be working with some of the most outstanding independent radiation researchers of the 20th century. Sadly, many of those are not with us today. I'm speaking of Dr. Rosalie Bertel, Dr. Alice Stewart, Dr. Stephen Wing, Dr. John Goffman. Um, the list is longer than that, but suffice it to say, the towering greats of our understanding of radiation beyond the promoter's point of view is something that both Cindy and I were greatly privileged to have direct contact, engagement, informal study with these people. So that's the last point. These are informal classes. We are not offering any credits. If someday someone wants to organize the CME and attach it to our work, we're very open to that. But this is purely a non-government organization activity. Cindy has an advanced degree, a master's degree from Johns Hopkins. I do not have any advanced degree. So we're making no claim that we are, hmm, I always say I'm a specialist, not an expert. So put it that way. <laughs> I have specialized for 35 years in these questions. Which is a lot more than a lot of people who have degrees can claim. Now, a year ago in 2022, you also gave a course on radiation. Is this the same course as a year ago or have there been some changes? Two things. This is a seminar approach. So it depends entirely on who comes as to what the course constitutes. We are engaging in original questions, original answers. There's nothing canned other than the pre-recorded lectures, which are a resource. But the actual educational process is together on the Zoom call where we can kick around ideas, ask questions, say, we don't know the answer, we'll get back to you, or share specific, very in-depth, well-developed answers, which don't fit well in a fact sheet or a 10-minute interview. So this is a dive. 
Sometimes it's deep, sometimes it's shallow, but every time it's different. So there is no such thing as the same course with Mary and Cindy twice. Second though, we will be reusing the videos that we created for the last time. However, I'm gonna be adding two more. So there will be some additional material. Are you planning on making this training an annual event or will you make it available in some future downloadable form from Gender and Radiation Impact Project or Beyond Nuclear or even on Amazon? Oh, such lovely ideas. We don't have answers, but what I can tell you is that Cindy and I taught four classes in 2022 and so much work, worthy work, worthy engagement came out of people's participation that we didn't have time to teach in 2023. We had the idea that we were going to do, you know, one to four classes per quarter in an ongoing way, but we had too many people come to us and say, we need your help. And we decided to help. So it's hard to predict. But we do have a commitment. We both of us feel that we bring to the table information, perspective, engagement that others do not. And we have an obligation to continue sharing that. Now, will we decide to make it a static, you know, you can buy it at Amazon kind of experience? I think we're both really committed to the process side of it to the discussion side of it. So if we get full of ourselves enough to decide that we did that, this is done, then I suppose we could have a static product, but not yet. <laughs> if you were to directly address the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat about why they should or need to take this course and what it might do for them, what would you say to them? I would say that if you're struggling on your own with documents that make your eyes cross, but you feel the need to engage with those documents and you understand that your eyes crossed, the one thing you will definitely get out of taking this course is a group of other people who are exactly in that same situation. And the coming home aspect of finding others who share your passion, your commitment, your being overwhelmed and oppressed this kind of ignorance that's intentional is a form of oppression and bringing that to each other and together to the content of the class is a certain form of empowerment and a certain form of freedom. And I think everybody who took our classes last year experienced that, even if they couldn't turn around and give a lecture telling exactly what they learned, they got that. And I think that is worth a lot. I know from my own experience that having community to turn to and to share with, even if things are not going well or we're confused or we're upset, it's best to not be alone with it. And the more we can pull together into community groupings, the stronger we will be, the happier we will be because we won't be alone. And I think also the more effective we can be. Exactly. If people want to sign up immediately for this. Where can they go and when will this start? It starts on September 5th and the materials will be shared two weeks before that, but up to September 5th, you won't have missed anything. September 5th is the first Zoom session. You go to gender and radiation spelled out, the A-N-D and is spelled out, dot O-R-G, gender and radiation dot O-R-G. And there's a little navigation panel at the top and one of the links is classes. And you just click on classes. 
and it takes you to the information about this class. We're not totally transparent, so the listeners of Hot Seat will hear from me directly that we actually have an application process. We have to protect this precious time from people who have malintent. So it's a two-part registration, but that's just so that we can interrupt and not have to return money to somebody that we were sad, had the wrong reason to come to the class. So there's a certain level of application and screening that does occur, but anybody who is of open heart and mind, doesn't matter how much they know, doesn't matter what their politics is, as long as they're not coming to be malicious to the class time, they're welcome. And thank you for taking such a protective stance to the rest of us who really do want to know and participate in what this class process is. Anything else you'd like to add at this time? Just that it's a hoot to work with Cindy Folkers. We've known each other for decades and doing this collaborative work together is so inspiring. And she brings so much to the class that shout out. Her organization is called Beyond Nuclear, beyondnuclear.org, all one word. I think they have some information about the classes up there in their bulletin, but you register at Gender and Radiation. Mary Olson, for the work you have done, are doing, and will continue to do. I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having me, Libby. I salute you and all of your broadcasts. Thank you so much. Mary Olson, founder of Gender and Radiation Impact Project at genderandradiation.org. We will have a link up to the registration page for these upcoming classes for Radiation Information for Everyone, or RIFE. It will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 634. And if you sign up, I will see you there, because I am definitely not going to miss out on this one. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. A big nuclear hot seat welcome to Melissa Park, who has been appointed the new executive director for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. Ms. Park is a former United Nations legal expert and Australian government minister. She has more than two decades of experience in the fields of international development, human rights, law, and politics, and has served as an ICANN Australian ambassador, in which capacity she has championed the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons since 2017. She takes on the role of executive director as of September 1st. The group Youth for the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, or TPNW, is calling for papers for publication. The authors must be under the age of 30. The paper must be relevant to the subject of nuclear disarmament and abolition, with preference to those referencing the TPNW, between 2,000 and 4,000 words long, and there are a few other minor points to cover, but if you are under 30, doing research, and would like to get your work published, we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 634. We will also have a link to Oppenheimer Advocacy Resources, put together by Back from the Brink, to help you build on this important opportunity to educate the public about the dangers that nuclear weapons pose to humanity and all we hold dear. We'll have a whole slew of links from Mary Olson if you wish to follow up on any of the topics she touches upon. And also on the website will be me doing storytelling about nuclear dangers and also my recent trip to Brazil. 
The International Uranium Film Festival is not only sending this out to their list as an example and explanation of what the festival is all about, but they're using it to support their announcement of me being named the United States Ambassador for the International Uranium Film Festival. More on that in the coming weeks. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 15, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase and join our database. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. The yellow opt-in box will now pop up right in front of you. Put in your first name and email address, and every week you will get one, just one email, with a link to that week's episode and a short description of the show's content. That way, you will never have any excuse for missing out on Nuclear Hot Seat. We also ask that if you have a website or you are an organization, if you could include a link to Nuclear Hot Seat, not just an individual episode, but the show itself, the landing page, NuclearHotSeat.com, we would really appreciate it. We've got no budget for hiring social media experts to get our information out. So to help us Put us where we're visible to your people. Include us in your emails going out, in your newsletters. Just send out an email blast to everyone on your list, letting them know the show is here. Help us help you. And we'll all move this movement forward. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything at all will really be appreciated. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, Hardestry Communications, and Nuclear Hot Seat. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, names of the guests whose comments you use, and me. This is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that a new study has tracked radioactive fallout from the Trinity test and the 100 above-ground explosions at the Nevada test site to show that radioactive particles hit every single state in the lower 48, plus Canada and Mexico. So if you think you're immune to the consequences of this radioactive legacy of U.S. nuclear bomb tests, think again. If that's not a nuclear wake-up call, I don't know what is. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.